Would you join me as we pray? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his only Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. God, we need you desperately now as we look into your word and from it derive doctrine, correction, rebuke, instruction in righteousness. Cause it to be a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. Cause your person and your character to be honored and glorified. Press our hearts away from that which would distract, that which is vain and empty, and turn our hearts towards the living truth that is able to make one wise unto salvation. whose words are spirit and whose words are life. To him we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've watched much of the news at this time of year over the last few years, you will perhaps identify with the residents of the state of California in the U.S. of A. and their uh, fear and their fatigue of wildfires. I've often wondered why we as people in this lakeland area of Alberta tend to be uh, so free of these disasters and, and uh, to God be the glory the recent fire in California, one firefighter of 30 years experience said that he had never battled a blaze as uh, large as that fire. Of course, along with the tens of thousands of acres of forest and homes that were burnt, a firefighter lost his life in that situation. And of course, in all cases like that, they try to seek out what might be the cause. And the cause, apparently, in this situation was a pyrotechnic device that was set off at a party. It was a gender reveal party. And I can imagine how sad and just deeply, deeply burdened the parents and the people at that gathering would be knowing that here they gather to celebrate the, the revealing of uh, the, the gender of a baby and a massive fire that even takes lives, a life, is the cosmic event or is the, is the event. 
Today we're going to look at another reveal party. What is going to be revealed to us is not the gender of a child. What is going to be revealed to us is the identification of a traitor that would have universal cosmic impact. The context is that Jesus is in the upper room and you can turn to John 13 with his disciples. In my exegetical work, the work that I have do prior to preaching, I've identified that the theme from John 13 through to John, through to uh, chapter, verse 1 through to 30, the theme is one word, cleansing. And some of you may be aware that the emphasis that I've taken in this passage is somewhat different than other commentators. I don't do that quickly without some fear. But humbly, it is clear to me that the theme is cleansing. And to detract from that into other issues is to do a disservice to the text. So the theme is cleansing. And initially, Jesus focuses on the individual cleansing of the disciples, the washing of their feet. And then he commands us to do this to one another. And he certainly wasn't talking about a cultural uh, uh, basin and water. He was talking about what he was talking about, and that is cleansing from sin. And then he moves from cleansing the individual to cleansing the group, which we're going to look at now. Now the identification of the traitor is made known, and he is going to be expulsed from the group. He's going to be sent out. No longer will Jesus ever say to this band of disciples, you are all clean, but not everyone. After this event takes place, he will have 11 clean disciples. And that will allow him to move into what we might call some of the most precious and intimate conversations between Jesus and the disciples from John 13 through to 16. As I said, intimacy always is preceded by cleansing. So from, from the passage point of view from the beginning, we are looking towards the cleansing of individuals and then the cleansing of this group. And another interesting thing I noted that as I studied this, John gives us hints all along towards this climatic event when Judas would be exposed. It's almost like he's, he's recording the events in the upper room but constantly reminding us this is going somewhere. This is heading somewhere. You notice in verse 2, when the events are just being introduced to us, 
we read as an introductory statement by John during the supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. You and I would not remember the supper that way. We might say, during the supper, the one where Jesus instituted the new covenant. Or we might say, during the supper, you remember the one where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. But John wanted to put a clue in our minds. He says, during the supper, which supper? Which was it, John? The one where Judas, Satan, put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. It's on his mind. And then as the, he unfolds the, the drama that, uh, and before us, again in verse 10 and 11, he records for us through the words of Jesus, when Jesus says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And Oh, we got another hint here. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. So as you're reading this, what I would want you to feel is, okay, something's building up something here. This is going to be important. And then in verses 18 and 19, again, even in greater detail, just before this event, we read, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Again, we have this ever-mounting evidence that this, the, John is writing this in a way that he's wanting the reader to anticipate this event. And then finally, in verse 21, the event takes place. I'm going to do something different this Sunday as if this is the first thing that's been different this Sunday. I'm going to do something a little bit different this Sunday. Is If Donna could put up the passage of Scripture, I put together in chronological format, importing the testimony of Matthew and Mark, the synoptics, into what happened. I want you to get the whole picture of what happened when Judas was revealed. And you'll see that John doesn't cover every detail, and neither does uh, John, uh, Matthew and Mark. If you're having trouble seeing that, then just maybe let me try to read this in a way that you'll get it. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And Matthew records, And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, 
He who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spake. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, so that disciple leaned back, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this. Some thought because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he went out, and it was night. Verse 21 tells us of the anticipation that Jesus had towards this event. He was troubled. Already John has mentioned how troubled Jesus' heart was at the, at the loss and the death of Lazarus, and now he's troubled again, and he will be troubled later in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the same word. It's, a, it's the same sense of angst and, 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 and being very disconcerted, even provoked, as Paul was in Athens. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a feeling of intensely being upset. But here we know why he's upset, because he says, because one of you is going to betray me. Imagine Jesus sitting in this experience of eating the Passover and nobody saying anything about this, but in his heart of hearts, he knows, he knows what's coming. And you wonder why. Well, the Holy Spirit gives us the answer. It's because... One of them in that group is going to betray him. And as we will learn, Jesus is the only one who really knows who it is. Can, can, you, can you imagine what was going on in Judas's mind, even up to this point? Can you imagine a disciple turning to Jesus and saying, You're, you're looking a little upset. Is something wrong? Yes, something's wrong. One of you is going to betray me. We're not told, but can you imagine what was going on in Judas's mind? 
The motions had already been set for this betrayal. Can you imagine what was going on? Wouldn't you feel uncomfortable and, and want to, you know, excuse me, teacher, can I leave the room? Mark records that when they be, when they began be, when when he became sorrowful, and say who, and he told them why they asked, "Is it I?" I find that stunning. I've never been able to answer that question all my Christian life. I still can't answer it. These twelve men sitting around the the meal table, lounging as they would in Middle East fashion. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. I can't help but think there's a, in spite of their frailty and their fallenness, I can't think that perhaps somewhere in this group of men there was a sense of character and humility that recognized that they had hearts that were prone to wander and they had in them, in their sinful nature, the possibility. I say that to convict you and I this morning. I really do. I say that so that you and I would be convicted. Because I guarantee you, if we heard a voice from heaven this morning in this auditorium with these words, one of you will betray me, I'll guarantee you that we will all look and I'll figure out who it is and I won't look at me. And that's the height of arrogance. That is the epitome of what it means to be arrogant. If we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ really understood our hearts, we would have to come to the place of admitting that apart from Christ, nothing wicked is removed from possibility in our life. And all you have to do is watch the stories of great and godly fallen men and women down through history who continue to fall. And you need to come to the place, as I do, that there's nothing incapable apart from the intervention and the grace of God that I'm not able to do if I have enough rope to do it. Is it I? Jesus goes through a drama. I think it's with point to reveal the betrayer. He says, I will give to the betrayer a, a morsel that I dip in the liquid, the gravy, and I'll place it on his lips. To do that in that setting was an act of intense friendship. You didn't do that with everybody. But someone who was, you would count as your dearest, closest friend, you would, you would take a morsel and place it in their mouth as an act of deep, deep friendship. Don't quote me on this. It, it could just be my brain gone nuts. But I, I pictured a, a couple getting married. 
And at the celebration, you know when they cut the cake? I've often wondered why the, the, the new husband places a bit of cake in the new wife's mouth. Unless you're watching America's Funniest Videos and they slap the whole cake in their face. Which is also dumb. But that exchange of food has at least got its roots in the Middle East culture that when I take a piece of food and put it into the, the mouth of someone, I am indicating you are my dearest, greatest friend. And in that process, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as that morsel was coming into Judas's mouth, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says Satan possessed him. I'm probably raising more questions than I'm answering, but I also find that stunning. I don't think there is anything more demonic than a person on the outside claiming to be the friend of Jesus whilst on the inside they hate him. I cannot think of a more wicked, satanic, demonic expression than someone who will go through the charade of the outside saying, Jesus is my friend. And in their heart, they despise him, they hate him, they don't want to have anything to do with him, they don't want to obey him, they don't want to follow him, they are at enmity with him. I cannot think of anything more satanic than that. As he was taking that morsel of friendship, he became possessed by Satan. Then the betrayer says, like all the others, and this is the reason I quoted Mark, so that you understood everyone else had said this, and not to be outdone by anyone else in the group. With hatred boiling in his heart, and a desire to, 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 to betray his Savior, as the morsel hits his mouth, as Satan fills his heart, he says, Is it I? You can't make this story up. <laughs> this is amazing. And Jesus just says, what you're planning to do, you go do it. Again, the eleven are totally clueless. You now we could call them the you know the clueless eleven. Make a movie of it. They don't know what's going on. They, here with all these clues, they still don't get it. They think that Jesus is sending them out maybe to get more food or to do an act of mercy, get some, something for the poor. They don't get it. Judas gets up and he walks out. And then you read these words. Verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, 
he immediately went out, and it was night. If I was a famous author, I would use words like that in my books when I write. Because they are so poignant and so pregnant with meaning, you, you just can't run from it. When Judas left, the last act of grace by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit caused John to write, and it was night. And I know that it was night. It was literally night. It was an evening meal. The sun would have gone down. But do you not see the spiritual importance there? Judas, Judas went out. Good thing we have first responders in the back. Judas went out into the darkest night that he would have ever experienced. And within a few days, he would experience a night time that would never end. I believe this morning that every one of you here is probably a person who has exercised faith in Christ and have put your trust in him. You have believed in him for your soul's salvation and you're living by faith in him. But if there's someone here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you hear the voice of Jesus say to you tonight, or this, say to you this morning, come to me. Come to me. Put your faith in me. Put your trust in me. I want to be your Savior, your friend, your Redeemer, your Lord. And you say no to him this morning. You may leave this place at noon on Sunday, the 21st of September, 27th of September, and it will be nighttime for you. And you may never see daylight again. This is like a post mall on the side of the head. And Judas left, and it was. Because we know the end of the story, he never saw daylight again spiritually. The drama here is amazing. I hope you've seen that. I mean, this is the, this is the epitome of cloak and dagger stuff. This is the kind of thing movies are made of. The play between individuals is absolutely stunning. But as I close, I have to ask the question, and if you're counting, that's only the first time I said when I close. There will be other times. I see that smile of that individual who told me that one time. But as I close, what's the message for us? Here in 2020, with our Bibles open, we know we have our scriptures, we've read this. 
What's the message for us? If you are here as a mature Christian and you're teaching a Sunday school class or you're perhaps a lay preacher and you're preaching, if you're leading a, a Bible study group, knowing what we just read and how I explained it, what would be the message you would give to your group? What would you say is the message for the group? And for those of you in this category, I hope you're expositional enough not to find the message that you think it should be. Because God in His mercy always gives us the message in the text. You don't have to make it up. Look at verse Look at verse 19 I am telling you Jesus says I am telling you this now before it takes place that's before the betrayal before his death I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. That's the message. There's no other message. That's the Holy Spirit-inspired message. This account of the upper room is here for you and I this morning. Because we know that it took place just as he said. We know that every detail occurred just as he said. And there is one application for you and I this morning to come to a sudden realization that Jesus told us these things would happen so that when they did happen, we would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God and by believing in his name might have life. It fits exactly with John's aim for the book. The events take place, the betrayal of Jesus, to confirm that what Jesus said is true, thereby affirming that this Jesus here in the upper room is God. I've used the word several times. I can't help but use it again. That's stunning. All this took place for you and I this morning to affirm the truth that the Jesus who handled out morsels, who spoke with the disciples, who washed their feet, this Jesus is God. That's why it's here for us. Only God can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. Amen. There's only one person that can tell you what's going to happen before it happens, and that's God. God said to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord, that's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. 
Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. One of the primary characteristics and attributes of God is the fact that he knows the future before it happens. He tells you of things that are going to take place before they do to show that he alone is God. Only God can tell you what is going to happen before it happens. No human being can. None. Only God can do that. So I place myself in your position. I ask, well, yeah, we know that, but is there any opposition to that idea? And I thought perhaps somebody would read verse 18 and say, well, God knew what was going to happen because the Scriptures foretold it. So how does that prove that he's God? He might have just been a good prophet. Look what he says. I'm not, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know who I have been chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. So that when it does take place, you may believe that I'm he. So you may not be asking this question, but this is an honest question that should come out of this text. When God says, I know the end from the beginning, we know that's an act of deity, that's a, that's a characteristic of divinity, but when Jesus says it here, how does that prove he's God? How does it prove that he's God? Why, he was just reading the Old Testament, just like you and I, that prophesied to these things. Do you, do you see the question? By asking this question, it's not academic. I'm going to take you deeper. You're going to, you're going to need a snorkel in a minute. Okay? You're going to need to... So, so don't treat this as academic. What if Jesus just knew the Old Testament and just was prophesying what would take place? That's what it seems to say. Turn with me to Psalm 41, where, where it's cited by, by the author. Psalm 41. Psalm 41, verse 9, which is cited here, reads in my Bible, Even my close friend, in whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. My time doesn't allow me to, de to go into detail, beloved, but do you know Psalm 41 is not about Judas? I'm going slowly, so you, I want you all to stick with me. Psalm 41 is not about Judas. Ahithophel, 
was a counselor of David's during the time of Absalom's rebellion. He pretended to be David's best friend. And he turned against David. And David's cry, his, his cry in Psalm 41 is, even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus, back in John 13, says, do you see what Judas is doing? He's saying to us. He's doing the same thing as the closest advisor to David did. That's recorded in Psalm 41. Why am I saying this? This is not a prophecy. This is called what by theologians call parallel prophecies, where Jesus and the apostles were able to reach back in the Old Testament and take a scenario and say, see, it's the same as this. It's something we're not allowed to do. So Matthew could go back in the time of Jesus and say, do you know where God said, I take my son out of Egypt? Referring to the nation of Israel. Well, this is what's happening when Jesus went down to Egypt. It's not the same as a prophetic announcement. It's using the scripture in parallel. When, when Isaiah records about a young lady who will give birth to a child who is a virgin, that is not about Mary. It's about a young lady in Israel. But when the Holy Spirit of God chose to communicate to Matthew, he told Matthew, just like that woman in Israel marries the same thing. All I'm doing is saying this to say, you cannot say of Jesus, yeah, he knew Judas was going to do it because it was prophesied. It was not prophesied that way. Jesus had the right and authority to go back to Psalm 41 and say to us, just like David's advisor rose up against him, my own, my own chosen one, Judas, rose up against me. What is it that I'm wanting to see? What, what do I have to just cut to the chase to help you see what I think is here. And you test it and see if I'm wrong. Jesus wants us to know that he is God. Not simply because he understands biblical prophecy. Jesus wants us to know that he is God who knows the end from the beginning. And watch this, here it comes. You've waited patiently for a half an hour for this. God bless you all. Jesus understood the end from the beginning, not simply because he understood Old Testament prophecy. He understood because he knows the heart of man. He knows the outcome because he knew Judas's heart. And he was able to say, your heart, Judas, is just like Ahithophel's heart was with David. Jesus is saying the most profound thing here. 
I know the end from the beginning because I know the very heart of a human being. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're wanting. I know what's motivating you. I know what you're planning to do. I know what you're going to say before you say it. I know what you're going to do before you even choose to do it. Beloved, are you seeing this? The stunning and amazing thing about the revelation of Jesus Christ in this passage is that he's God, and he's God because he knows the end from the beginning, and he knows the end from the beginning because he knows the heart of a person. I mean, to foretell the future based on Old Testament prophecies is good. But to be able to foretell the future because you know a person's heart, that takes us out of the realm of normal into the realm of the divine. The Son of God knew exactly what was going on in Judas's heart. And watch this, even when Judas himself may not have been too much aware of it. That should bring to question any time you and I say of ourselves, yeah, I know me. Uh-uh. Turn with me one to final passage. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I seem to be cutting a lot of grass for Pastor Josh in the book of Hebrews for preaching these Sundays, but... Um, no, I'm not going to apologize. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You and I have heard this taught multitudes of time in reference to the Bible. And I don't think it's wrong, but that's not very right either. Let's read on. No, the Word of God is living. It's active. It discerns the motives of hearts. And no creature is hidden from His sight. This is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the incarnate Word of God. He Himself is looking at in heaven today, even now, in my heart. He's discerning my motives. He's discerning my intentions. And there's nothing in me, according to this passage, that isn't naked and laid open before Jesus Christ the man of God. Nothing. There's nothing hidden here. Because he's God. And he can go right to where we are motivated. And just as he could look into Judas and see exactly what Judas was going on, he is looking today at your heart and my heart and he is noticing how we're motivated, 
what we're thinking, what we're going to do. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. I wrote, Christ knows us better than our parents. Christ knows us better than our spouses. Christ knows us better than our children. Christ knows us better than we know ourselves. Christ knows what we think. Christ knows that sometimes we think we're better than we are. He knows that. He knows what's behind everything we do. He knows our motivation. He knows our intention. Christ knows the skeleton in my closet. Christ knows all about the things that if they came to light, it would ruin me in a second. Everything is bare before him. Everything is naked. You're very familiar with David who said, He searched me, he knows me, he knows when I sit down, he knows when I rise up. He discerns my thoughts from afar. He searched out my path, my lying down, even before a word is on my tongue. He knows it. Then he asks the important question, where can I go from your spirit? <laughs> Answer, nowhere. The point of this passage is to tell us that Jesus Christ in the upper room is the incarnate Son of God who knows the end from the beginning. And the reason he knows the end from the beginning is he knew the heart of Judas through and through. Later on, we're going to know that he even knew the heart of the disciples because he was able to look at them saying, guess what, you guys are going to betray me. You will betray me. But for us this morning, I would like this to land like a rocket ship on this pad. And I'd like everyone here this morning to recognize the truth of this that there's nothing about you that isn't absolutely bare before God. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you just thought when I said that. And he knows what you're going to think in a few minutes. And he knows what you're planning to do. And he knows what you're planning to do even before you've planned to do it. If I were to come to you and say, are you planning to do this? You'd say, no, it's not even in my mind. God knows it's in your mind. He already knows the end from the beginning. He knows all possibilities of options with you, and he knows the one you're going to choose. Does that strike terror in anyone's heart? If you're not a Christian, it should. If you joined us on the air or if you happen to be here this morning and, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it ought to scare the hell out of you. I say that intentionally and with purpose and, and respectfully. It ought to scare the hell out of you that Jesus Christ knows everything about you and he knows what you don't even know. 
your only solution, if you're not a believer, is to make this God, who is the supreme enemy of your soul, your friend, through Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, the gospel takes all that terror away. As many times as I've preached on this, I've never yet come upon a Christian who wilted in terror when I told them God knew all about them. I find that fascinating. And I think the only solution to that is because we know the gospel. <laughs> we know the gospel. We know the fact that because at one time we are enemies of Christ, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, He appeased the anger of God and through Christ, by grace, made us friends. That's the only thing that can account for a person not wilting in absolute terror if they hear that God knows them like an open book. There's no fear in love, John wrote later in his letter. Perfect love casts out fear. That's the only explanation why a Christian does not absolutely cascade in terror in knowing that God knows all about them. For a person who's a Christian, the Scripture says that in Christ, in love, God predestined us to be adopted to Himself as sons. And you and I are aware that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The only reason why you and I can even maintain some dignity physically in hearing that God knows all about us is the fact that He must love us tremendously. And all the evil and the wicked that you and I have done must be dealt with. Otherwise, our life would be a living terror. John Helopidus wrote, God knows our weakness. He knows our failings. He knows our sins. But instead of that knowledge causing him to despise us, he responds and cares for us. When you're in Christ, even though God knows all these things, rather than responding in anger, he responds in more care. Let me explain. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. Today's message puts a whole new spin on that, doesn't it? I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. The author goes on to say, Dear brothers and sisters, our good shepherd knows us thoroughly. Nothing about us, from the greatest to the slightest thing, from the most obvious to the most private, nothing remains hidden from him. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us through and through, and he does not despise us. On the contrary, the better a shepherd knows his sheep, the better he can provide for those sheep. Don't you want to weep with joy 
What a difference it is to be a Christian and to be able to say, I am known by the Father. I am known by the Son. He knows me so well. He can adequately meet my need. He can adequately provide for me because He knows. So for the Christian, the greatest truth, the greatest encouragement that I can provide this morning is the comfort of God knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows your weakness. And he knows your sin. And he knows that what you're going to leave here today, you're going to sin again. And he's going to provide for that sin. And he's going to provide for that weakness. And he's going to provide for that frailty. And he's going to provide for you because he's now not your judge. He's your shepherd. But as I speak again to someone who may not be a Christian, where God is still your judge, I need to tell you that the reason he is your judge is because he's holy and you've offended him. And I do not apologize, but I say to you quite clearly, he is angry at you today. And there's only one thing going to take away his anger. It's the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, in your place and your trust in him. And because of the shed blood of Christ, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are immediately united together as one with God. God becomes our adoptee father. He is now our shepherd and our caregiver. And who best to care for us than someone who really knows us? And so the fact that he knows you ought to bring you comfort, not terror. The fact that he knows you ought to bring you encouragement, not dismay. The fact that he knows you even so much that he knows what you're going to say before you say it, ought to be your strength and your hope. Would you pray with me as I invite Sherry to come with her team? Heavenly Father, if there be anyone here this morning or listening through our online broadcast that recognizes the fact that you are yet their judge. They are your, you are their holy king whom you've been offended by their behavior, their choices, and their heart's condition. Because of your love of righteousness, you can only do what's right, and that is judge them and send them to hell. 
forever. I pray that the terror of the Lord would be a means to draw them to yourself, that this day they would turn to you and confess their sin, put their faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, be united with you forever, and be able to call you Father. Oh, how I pray that men and women will be saved this day. Saved from the wrath of God and hell. That men and women will be moved from darkness to light, from death to life. Oh, please, Father, do this work in our midst. And for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us understand what a blessing it is that you know us. What joy, what comfort it is to know that nobody knows us like Jesus. Cause that truth to cement in our souls and give us strength and stability for the week ahead. And as we sing this final song, I pray, Father, that you would seal it, seal the truth with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' precious name, amen.